Uh, last week, uh, maybe you'll remember, I, I told a story about a guy named B.J. Miller. And B.J. was a, a student at Princeton University uh, a while back. And he was out uh, late with some friends one night. They'd been drinking. Um, and after they left the bar, wherever they were, the party, they were just kind of being college students who... Um, you know, been drinking a lot, whatever. And they decided it would be fun to climb up on some rail cars, and so they did that. And you remember me saying that BJ got up to the top of this rail car at a nearby kind of train depot, and uh, there was an electric uh, electrical line nearby, and it arced to his wristwatch, which was metallic, um, and 11,000 volts entered his body right there, and essentially it fried him. It fried him. He survived amazingly, but he, he didn't survive without significant damage. He ended up losing three of his limbs. Um, and what I didn't tell you last week was that BJ didn't just kind of give up on his life. He didn't count it as forfeit and just, uh, you know, kind of uh, wilt or wither away and be mean or, or whatever the rest of his life. That wasn't his story. He actually recovered, finished at Princeton, went on to med school and got some advanced training in different things. It's kind of like the life hero. And um, BJ now uh, runs a center in San Francisco for people who are, are nearing the end of their life. They have terminal diseases or a terminal condition, and essentially it's, it's a hospice care. And they seek to do some of that same work and kind of help people in those last days. There was a, a woman who had heard BJ speak at a conference, and her name was... Um, Risa Sharon, and she is herself is a professor of medicine at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. She says this, We know from seeing BJ standing in front of us that he has suffered. We know that he has been at the brink of the abyss that he's talking about. And that gives him an authority that others may not have. He says, look, we can look at him at his body, at his person, and know that he's been at the brink of the abyss that he's talking to us about. And that that experience gives him an authority, makes him an authority on that topic. All semester we've been looking at this book of Revelation. And what Revelation is, is... Uh, the Apostle John, who is a friend of Jesus, he walked with Jesus, he uh, watched Jesus do miraculous things, he himself was empowered to do miraculous things, he was a friend, confidant of Jesus. Jesus gives John a vision, a set of visions actually, into how things really are in this world. Right, The truth behind all that we see in this world. It's not a different world. It's the same world. But he gives John the ability to see the invisible things of this world. Past, present, and future. John, in this passage tonight, he gets a peek into the abyss. He sees some really troubling things. A few weeks ago, um, we saw... In the unsealing of these seals, which is basically God showing us what history is about, we saw what suffering looks like from the perspective of the church. That the church is persecuted through the ages and there will be many who even die for the name of Jesus. Tonight we see, in a sense, those same seals happening, although it's trumpets this time. But it's the same thing that's going on. God is, is unrolling history... For, Jesus to, uh, for John to see and to, to, read, uh, to write to his readers. 
Except this time it's from the perspective of the world. It's from the perspective of those outside the church, those who don't believe necessarily. And here's what I want us to see in this. That the sounding of these seven trumpets is about judgment, yes. It is. It's about judgment. It's actually a series of judgments. But the judgments we're going to see tonight are not final. They are not the final judgment. These judgments that we're going to see are like seven alarm clocks that God is sounding to the world as if to say, wake up. There's something wrong in this world and you need to wake up and see that you're on the wrong side of this. So it's judgments not in the sense of he's, he's coming to ultimately deal with, with sin and evil now. He is sending these judgments as a precursor, as an alarm clock, as a means to say, wake up. As you can see on your handout right there, it's a long passage. So it's a longer reading, but I'm not going to talk for as long after But it's going to be confusing. So in order to kind of orient us, let me tell you what's about to happen. Okay? In the first four trumpets that are blown, uh, this is a picture. It's, It's full of imagery and all sorts of stuff. But this is a picture of God unleashing the natural forces of the world on the world. The fifth trumpet is a picture of God unleashing the demonic powers on the world. And it's scary. I'm not kidding. It is terrifying. Imagine... If you didn't have all the images that we have through TV and and stuff like that, imagine if you're hearing this and you're just having to let your imagination marinate in it. It's going to be terrifying. The sixth trumpet is a picture saying there's this huge army coming from the river, the Euphrates River. What is that? In the Roman world, the Roman Empire, the Euphrates River was the far eastern border of their world. It was the eastern border of the Roman Empire, and he sees 200 million people Lining up to do battle. In the seventh trumpet, we see something very interesting. We see a group of people singing. A group of people singing. So that's what we're going to get at. Let's read it now. Revelation chapter 8, 9, and then part of chapter 11. Again, a longer reading. Follow with me, uh, if you would. This is God's Word. It says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's kind of a preamble to the trumpets, and here they are. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. 
third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day may be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the the other trumpets that these three angels are about to blow. And the the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke came... Uh, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but the death, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the, no- the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpion, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes woes are still to come. Then the angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode upon them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. 
The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is God's word. And it's a hard word tonight. It's a hard word. Look, this is not only my least favorite thing to talk about, it's my least favorite thing to think about. What we see tonight is terrifying, and it's supposed to be. What we see tonight is is described as something awful, and that's the point. So the question becomes, what do we do with it? This is in the Bible. This is like, this is the stuff that we want to like, oh no, you know, God is love, and I don't know about all that crazy stuff. Like, what do we do with this? Two things I want us to see. The first one is this. Through these vivid and terrifying visions, we see this firstly. That God's loyalty demands justice. That God's loyalty demands justice. Secondly, we're going to see that God's love dictates patience. His loyalty, demand, his loyalty demands justice, and His love dictates patience. Look at, let's look at the first one. What do I mean by this? I mean that in seeing these judgments rolled out, we learn that God, we learn that God is a God of justice. That God is a God of justice. That His character, His nature is to be just. Is to be just. What do I mean when I say that? First thing right there, God takes evil and sin seriously. God's judgment means that He takes evil and sin seriously. So, this concept only makes sense if you take the Bible at its word. Meaning, that we have to understand why the... Where evil even comes from. Why there is evil in the world. What is sin. And what ultimately is God going to do about it. Okay. So what do we do with sin? Where does it come from? How does the Bible explain evil in this world? The things that are wrong. And the things are oh so wrong. The Bible is, is different than uh, other religions. It's different than, um, for instance, Hinduism and Buddhism, which say that, that, that evil and suffering is an illusion. And the way to escape it is essentially to ignore it or to, to, um, to get outside of yourself and just basically kind of trance yourself to where you don't have to acknowledge it. The Bible says that evil and suffering and sin is, is different than like a naturalistic or atheistic worldview, which says that, it, that evil is just a necessary and obvious byproduct of the evolutionary progress. That it wasn't supposed to be this way, it's just like a, a byproduct. That's how they uh, account for evil and suffering in the world. The Bible has its own take on it. It says that evil is real. That it is real. And it came into the world when both the spiritual realm, in the beginning it says God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says that evil is here because beings in both the spiritual and the physical realm rebelled against God. They went against His order. 
Right? We don't have as much information on how that happened in the spiritual realm. Isaiah 14 says that Satan is like a, a star fallen from heaven. We read, we read about tonight. That he rebelled against God and he fell from grace. He fell from God's good presence. But we do see a lot about how evil enters this world. But after God created the world, it was good. He put Adam and Eve in the world. And he said, look, it's amazing. Go out in this world and enjoy it and, and cultivate it and make beauty from it and create culture and technology and have babies. Do all this stuff and, and it's good. Just don't do that one thing. Don't eat of that one tree. And what did they do? They did. They did that one thing. And that, that act, right? We, we think it might just be like a little pithy act that they, oh, they ate of this fruit. What's so bad about that? No. What happened was they were saying, God, we don't trust you. We don't want to follow you. We don't want to live in this world according to your rules. We want to do what we want to do. So it wasn't just like a little disobedience. It was a cosmic rebellion where they said, we want to do what we want to do. And friends, in this judgment scene that we see in Revelation, we see that God is not indifferent to that rebellion. That when mankind looks at God and says, I'm going to do what I want to do, God says, okay, well, I'm going to have to punish you for that. And he said at the beginning, before Adam and Eve sinned, he said, if you do this, you will surely die. And ever since that moment, mankind has a death sentence hanging over us. We brought it on. It's not God being evil. It's not him being capricious. We brought it on ourselves. And God's saying, I have to, I have to deal with it. I said I was going to. Let me help you understand how it works. Um, every semester, at the beginning of every semester, you walk into every one of your classes and your professor hands you a what? Syllabus. In that syllabus, there's lots of meaningless information, stuff they have to put in there that you've read a thousand times. But there is some very important information in there. It is, here are the assignments. Here is the grading scale. Here's what the assignments are worth. And you start figuring, okay, you know, we all do those calculations like, okay, I'm making 94 on this and I can not show up to these many classes. We do that. Um, it's very important that we pay attention to the grading scale. Essentially, what this is, since the professor uh, is kind of setting the tone and the rules of the class, he or she gets to decide how that works, what they're going to assign however many points to. So that syllabus becomes, in essence, the rule or the law for that class. You, as the student who's paying lots of money to take that class... You can decide whether or not you want to obey by that rule or that law, right? It's up to you. It really is. You don't know, uh, if you don't obey it too much, you're not going to get invited back. But it really is. The rules are there. The law is there. Do this. You get an A. You get a B. You get a C, a D, F if you're in a rock and fluid prop. Um, that's just the way it is. Shout out to my petroleum boys and girls. Um, fewer girls and boys, though. So we get it, though. The professor has charge of it. God is the professor. He has said, here's, how, here's what it means to live in my world. You do this, and it will go well for you. If you don't, it won't. And Adam and Eve didn't do it. And so it wasn't going to go well for them. So God sees sin, and He takes it, he takes it personally. Because it's not just an arbitrary law that He gave. It was the rebellion was against Him. Let me drill this down for us real quick. 
judgments that we see in this passage, and I'm not going to go into all of them in detail at all. I'm just taking them as an overview. The judgments that we see tell us that God is not indifferent to our sin. He wasn't indifferent to Adam and Eve's sin. He's not indifferent to our sin. Which is scary. That's a scary thought. That means that God sees the gospel. He sees how it is that we talk about other people. And he is offended by that because these people are made in his image. That guy or that girl you just can't stand and you want to talk about or you do talk about, that's an offense to God. He also sees the excessive and underage drinking. And we may and often do think, that's ah, just not a big deal. Like, it was just me and a few friends. Look, we may, we may think that the laws of the land are totally arbitrary. And at 21, is the stupidest number in the world. We can vote at 18. We can go to war at 18. But we can't drink toward 21. That's stupid. Look, part of me agrees with you. It, it seems arbitrary. But it kind of doesn't matter what we think. God has said, look, the laws of the land are there. We respect the laws of the land. And, and so a transgression of the law of the land is an offense to God. God also sees those of you who are self-righteous and judgmental toward those who drink underage and excessively. And he's no more enamored with you than them. That judgmentalism and that self-righteousness is an affront to God. He's also concerned with things like your motivations. Those selfish motivations to want to be included in every Snapchat story or every Instagram or how we get our feelings hurt when we're not. Like, it's all about self. How good can I look? How many friends can I posture as having? Those selfish motivations, God cares about that. He cares about our manipulations, the way we talk to guys and girls, the way we try to impress them, the way that we maybe make ourselves look a little better than we are or, or seem to be nicer than we are, to be more religious or spiritual than we are, whatever that means. Like, God sees that. And he sees that as rebelling against them. It may feel subtle. For some of us, much of our sin is very subtle. It's tricky. We may not even thought of it as sin. But God takes it personal and he says, look, I have to deal with that stuff. I have to deal with it. So judgment says that God takes evil and sin seriously. But the second thing is that we see in this passage that God actually moves against evil and sin. He moves against it. What do I mean? That may sound obvious, but this passage ends with 24 elders around a throne. This is a scene from earlier in Revelation. It's basically just a worship service. You see these people praising God for these judgments that are awful and terrible that have just been unfurled on the creation. So why in the world are these people standing around singing? They're singing and they're praising God because he did something with all the evil and the sin in the world. He did something about it. He's doing something about it. He's not indifferent to it. He acts toward evil and sin. He does something about it. Why does that matter to you and to me? It may sound strange that these people are worshiping God for this. Let me help you understand why that's a big deal and why you should care about that. A, a friend of mine, uh, his wife, when they, when they were in college, 
Uh, his wife was leading a, a Bible study on her dorm hall. I think she was an RA or something. And that was before, probably, RAs probably can't do that anymore, I don't know. But she was doing that on her dorm hall. And uh, one day they were talking about a passage that, that was also talking about Jesus as the judge. And it's one of these kind of passages that you really don't like, but that's just where they were in that Bible study. And, and there was a girl who um, was a part of the study, and she normally was much more uh, vocal and sharing and this and that. But that particular day, she was very quiet, very subdued in that Bible study. And after it was over, the others left, and she stuck around and, and asked uh, my friend's wife, said, Hey, so, um, does the Bible really teach that God is going gonna, is gonna to judge evil and people who are evil and who never repent? Turn, turn away from their evil deeds. It's God, does the Bible really teach that? And, you know, and my friend, uh, friend's wife was sitting there thinking like, oh gosh, like here it goes. I'm going to say yes. And this person's going to say, well, I can't believe in a God like that. My friend said, well, I mean, based on what the Bible says, yes. Like, God is going to fully and finally one day judge evil. And this girl said, okay, I guess I can believe in him then. Because, you see, my dad died about a year ago. And my dad was an evil man. And he did some really evil things to me and to my family. And he never said that he loved Jesus. He never went to church. He never did any of this. But at his funeral, people kept standing up and saying how happy they were that they were going to see him in heaven. And I just kept thinking that if my dad's going to be in heaven, if God's going to let him into heaven, I don't want to be there. Because I know what he did to me. You see, friends, if you've ever been on the receiving end of something really evil, the idea that God is taking evil seriously and that he's doing something about it is actually good news. It means that everything evil that's ever happened in this world that Jesus has not died for, There have been evil people who have done evil things and who have repented of that evil and confessed it to God and are forgiven by Jesus based on what he's done. That is true. But for all the other evil, the balance of the things in the world which have been done by the people over there, by the people around here, and by the people right here, all of the evil that isn't confessed to God and asked for forgiveness will be dealt with. And look, we live in America. We live in the most prosperous nation in the history of ever. And this is kind of hypothetical for some of us, but I promise y'all, if you were to take this passage over into countries and parts of the world where they have just suffered immensely for generations and for millennia, and it's one bad dictator after another bad dictator... When they read a passage that says that God is going to fully and finally deal with evil one day, and He acts and He moves against evil, they're going to want to worship Him. And you should too. Because a God who is indifferent toward evil isn't a God that's worth your worship. He moves against evil. He cares about it. Look, um, there's a couple things we need to know about that judgment against evil. The first, there's a passage that I was going to read, but I'm not going to for time. The first thing is that God is fair in His judgment. He's fair. He's going to be fair. The evil done to you, which maybe, uh, maybe for which you're suffering intensely right now, He is going to be fair in His judgment. 
The second thing that we have to learn is that God is going to punish all rebellion and evil. So that means the stuff out there, the awful stuff in the world, which we read about, it is not hard to see. It's awful. It's every day. It's nonstop. God is going to punish all rebellion and evil out there and in here. Out in all the other hearts of the world, out in all the other systems of the world that are unjust and oppressive. But look, it's not just that it's happening out there. It happens in here. It's those, those judgmental thoughts. It's the self-righteousness. It's the pride. All that stuff, God says, I have to deal with it. And what we have to hear in these alarms is God saying, you're going down the wrong road and you better turn around. There's still time, though. There's still time. God is patient. His love dictates that He's also patient. Where do we get that? Look, if you notice in this passage, early on, the four trumpets, and then again in the fifth, and the four trumpets, we kept seeing this third. In a third of the world, this. In a third of the land, that. In a third of the people, this. In a third of the river, that. What is happening? What are we seeing in this? Is that God is not bringing full judgment yet. It's measured. It's, it's just a little part of the creation. Why? Why is only some of it being, taken, uh, being threatened right now? Why is only some of the upheaval happening? Because God is being patient with us. Peter uh, was another friend of Jesus. He was also living in a time when Christians were being persecuted, just like John's friends were to whom he's writing this letter Peter says this in his letter uh, to uh, Christians who have been scattered because of their persecution. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Look, he's writing to Christians, to a group of people who have been suffering. He's saying, look, I know that you're ready for God to deal with this and to bring it all to an end. And to deliver you to glory and make all the suffering stop. He's saying, he's not, he hasn't forgotten about you. He's being patient. Because he wants all of his people to come to repentance. All of you. He's writing to Christians. Who is you? All of the people. All of his people. Come to me, he's saying. Listen to the alarms and come to me. God is exercising patience in the world right now. So what do we do with this? Uh, We're pretty much done. What do we do with this? C.S. Lewis uh, has a way with words, as you know. He says this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But He shouts to us in our pain. Let me say it again. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But He shouts in our pain. The question you've got to ask is, can you hear that? What is your pain saying? What is God saying in the midst of your own pain and in the pain and the fragmentation of the world? What's God trying to say to you? In 2015, uh, you'll remember, no doubt, uh, a guy by the name of Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof walked into um, a church. Some of y'all got to go to UA. That's great. Just have out and do your thing. Um, Dylan Roof walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina. 
right uh, during their midweek uh, prayer and Bible study. He walks in, and after the service was over, people were milling around. Dylan Roof stood up and killed nine men and women. Black congregation. He killed them all. Not them all. He killed all nine of them. And it was awful. The act was terrible. But friends, it, what was even seemingly worse is in last year when the trial was unfolding, maybe you saw this on the news, maybe you followed it, Dylan Roof wanted to represent himself in court because he didn't want his lawyers to try to swindle his way out of it. And in tapes recording from his trial, he said this. He said, um, I'd do it all over again. I would do it all over again. He later would go on to say that he wasn't just trying to kill those nine black people at church that night. He wanted to start a race war. That's evil. I don't have to convince you. I don't have to convince anyone of that. That's evil. It's real. It's in the world. It's present. Can you hear that? What is God saying in the midst of these awful things to you? He's saying, turn around. Turn around. Join my kingdom of love and of life. Because if you don't, you're going to continue belonging to the kingdom of darkness. And things like that, like Dylan Ruth, that will be what's true in that kingdom of darkness forever. And so the patience right now is is God saying there's still time. The final judgment has not yet come. You can still repent. You can still come to me. Heed the alarms and turn around. And look, there's a way through the judgment. What is it? How do we get through that judgment? How do we escape? The way back is to run toward the judge. The way through the judgment is to run toward the judge. How can we ever do that? Because friends, when you start running toward this judge who appears as a lion, as we've seen, he's a lamb. He's a lamb who was slain. You see, God God actually entered into evil. And he didn't just enter into evil, he became evil. At the cross. Jesus stood right in the face of the worst judgment the world has yet seen. And he took it. He took it for his people. And what that means is if you believe him, then you're one of his people. You're one of his adopted children. You get in and you will escape God's full and final judgment. Friends, if if you haven't done it, I urge you to consider it because there's still time. But we don't know how long this alarm clock's going to go off before it gets silenced. And that'll be the most terrifying silence the world has ever known. So listen to the alarm clock. Repent and come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would use this not just as a something terrifying, Lord, but use it as something redemptive in our lives. Would you, by your Spirit, cause something good to come uh, from something that's very hard to hear and to consider? Lord, those of us who um, 
Maybe, maybe we are one of your children. Maybe we do love you. Maybe we do trust you. Would you use this to give us um, a care and concern for people around us? Lord, not to go screaming at them, not to go pressuring them in ways that are undignifying, but to love them and to want to, to talk to them about things that matter. Would you help us to do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.